Chapter 29 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 29. On the following day, my aunt, who never speaks unless when strongly moved, took it into her head to begin a conversation with the abbe and the chaplain, and as, with the exception of her family affections, which entirely absorb her, she is incapable of conversing on any topic but that of family honor, she was ere long deep in a dissertation on her favorite subject, genealogy, and laboring to convince the two priests that our race was the purest and the most illustrious, as well as the most noble, of all the families of Germany, on the female side particularly. The abbe listened with patience, the chaplain with profound respect, when Albert, who apparently had taken no interest in the old lady's disquisition, all at once interrupted her. It would seem, my dear aunt, said he, that you are laboring under some hallucination as to the superiority of our family. It is true that their titles and nobility are of sufficient antiquity, but a family which loses its name, abjures it in some sort in order to assume that of a woman of foreign race and religion, gives up its right to be considered ancient in virtue and faithful to the glory of its country. This remark somewhat disconcerted the canonists, but as the abbe had appeared to lend profound attention to it, she thought it incumbent on her to reply. I am not of your opinion, my dear child, said she. We have often seen illustrious houses render themselves still more so, and with reason by uniting to their name that of a maternal branch, in order not to deprive their heirs of the honor of being descended from a woman so illustriously connected. But this is a case to which that rule does not apply, answered Albert, with a pertinacity for which he was not remarkable. I can conceive the alliance of two illustrious names. It is quite right that a woman should transmit to her children her own name, joined with that of her husband, but the complete extinction of the latter would appear to me an insult on the part of her who would exact it, and an act of baseness on the part of him who would submit to it. You speak of matters of very remote date, Albert, said the canoness, with a profound sigh, and are even less happy than I in the application of the rule. Our good abbe might, from your words, suppose that some one of our ancestors had been capable of such meanness. And since you appear to be so well informed on subjects of which I supposed you comparatively ignorant, you should not have made a reflection of this kind relative to political events, now, thank God, long passed away. If my observation disturb you, I shall detail the facts in order to clear the memory of our ancestor withhold, the last count of Rudelstadt, of every imputation injurious to it. It appears to interest my cousin, he added, seeing that my attention had become riveted upon him, astonished as I was to see him engage in a discussion so contrary to his philosophical ideas and silent habits. Know then, Amelia, that our great-great-grandfather, Ratislaw, was only four years old when his mother, Ulrika, of Rudelstadt, took it into her head to inflict upon him the insult of supplanting his true name, the name of his father's, which was Podibrod, by this Saxon name which you and I bear today.
you without blushing for it, and I without being proud of it. It is useless to say the least of it, said my uncle, who seemed ill at ease, to recall events so distant from the time in which we live. It appears to me, said Albert, that my aunt has gone much further back in relating the high deeds of the Rudolstadts, and I do not know why one of us, when he recollects by chance that he is of Bohemian and not of Saxon origin, that he is called Podibrod and not Rudolstadt, should be guilty of ill-breeding in speaking of events which occurred not more than twenty-five years ago. I know very well, replied the abbe, who had listened to Albert with considerable interest, that your illustrious family was allied in past times to the royal line of George Podibrod, but I was not aware that it had descended in so direct a line as to bear the name. It is because my aunt, who knows how to draw out genealogical trees, has thought fit to forget the ancient and venerable one from which we have sprung. But a genealogical tree, upon which our glorious but dark history has been written in characters of blood, stands yet upon the neighboring mountains. As Albert became very animated in speaking thus, and my uncle's countenance appeared to darken, the abbe, much as his curiosity was excited, endeavored to give the conversation a different turn. But mine would not suffer me to remain silent when so fair an opportunity presented itself for satisfying it. "'What do you mean, Albert?' I exclaimed, approaching him. "'I mean that which a podibrod should not be ignorant of,' he replied, "'that the old oak of the Stone of Terror, which you see every day from your window, Amelia, "'and under which you should never sit down without raising your soul to God, "'bore, some three hundred years ago, fruit rather heavier than the dried acorns it produces today.' "'It is a shocking story,' said the chaplain, horror-struck, and I do not know who could have informed the count of it. The tradition of the country, and perhaps something more certain still, replied Albert, you have in vain burned the archives of the family and the records of history, Mr. Chaplin. In vain you have brought up children in ignorance of the past. In vain impose silence on the simple by sophistry, on the weak by threats, neither the dread of despotic power, however great, nor even that of hell itself, can stifle the thousand voices of the past which awaken on every side. No, no, they speak too loudly, these terrible voices, for that of a priest to hush them. They speak to our souls in sleep in the whisperings of spirits from the dead. They appeal to us in every sound we hear in the external world. They issue even from the trunks of the trees, like the gods of the olden time, to tell us of the crimes, the misfortunes, and the noble deeds of our ancestors. And why, my poor child, said the canoness, why cherish in your mind such bitter thoughts, such dreadful recollections? It is your genealogies, dear aunt, it is your recurrence to the times that are gone, which have pictured to my mind those fifteen monks hung to the branches of the oak by the hand of one of my ancestors, the greatest, the most terrible, the most persevering, he who was surnamed the Terrible, the Blind, the Invincible John Ziska of the Chalice, the exalted yet abhorred name of the Chief of the Taborites, a sect which during the War of the Hussites surpassed all other religionists in their energy, their bravery, and their cruelty, fell like a thunderbolt on the ears of the Abbe and the Chaplain. 
The latter crossed himself, and my aunt drew back her chair, which was close to that of Albert. Good heaven, she exclaimed, of what and of whom does this child speak? Do not heed him, Mr. Abbe. Never, no, never, was our family connected by any ties, either of kindred or friendship, with the odious reprobate whose name has just been mentioned. Speak for yourself, Aunt, said Albert with energy. You are a rudostat to the heart's core, although in reality a podibrod. As for myself, I have more bohemian blood in my veins, all the purer, too, for its having less foreign admixture. My mother had neither Saxons, Bavarians, nor Prussians in her genealogical tree. She was of pure Slavonic origin. And since you appear to care little for nobility, I, who am proud of my descent, shall inform you of it, if you are ignorant, that John Ziska left a daughter who married the Lord of Prashelitz, and that my mother herself, being a Prashelitz, descends in a direct line from John Ziska, just as you yourself, my aunt, descend from the Rudelstadts. It is a dream, a delusion, Albert. Not so, dear aunt. I appeal to the chaplain, who is a God-fearing man, and will speak the truth. He has had in his hands the parchments which prove what I have asserted. I, exclaimed the chaplain, pale as death. You may confess it without blushing before the abbe, replied Albert, with cutting irony since you only did your duty as an Austrian subject and a good Catholic in burning them the day after my mother's death. That deed, which my conscience approved, was witnessed by God alone, falteringly replied the chaplain, terror-stricken at the disclosure of a secret of which he considered himself the sole human repository. Who, Count Albert, could have revealed it to you? I have already told you, Mr. Chaplain, a voice which speaks louder than that of a priest. What voice, Albert? I exclaimed with emotion. The voice which speaks in sleep, replied Albert. But that explains nothing, my son, said Count Christian, sighing. It is the voice of blood, my father, said Albert, in a tone so sepulchral that it made us shudder. Alas, said my uncle, clasping his hands, these are the same reveries, the same phantoms of the imagination, which haunted his poor mother. She must have spoken of it to our child in her last illness, he added, turning to my aunt, and such a story was well calculated to make a lively impression on his memory. Impossible, brother, replied the canoness. Albert was not three years old when he lost his mother. It is more likely, said the chaplain in a low voice, that there must have remained in the house some one of those cursed heretical writings filled with lies and impieties which she had preserved from family pride, but which nevertheless she had the courage and virtue to surrender to me in her last moments. No, not one remained, replied Albert, who had not lost a single word of what the chaplain said, although he had spoken in a low voice, and although he was walking about, much agitated, at that moment at the other end of the saloon. You know very well, sir, that you destroyed them all and moreover, that the day after her death you searched and ransacked every corner of her chamber. Who has thus aided, or rather misled, your memory, Albert? asked Count Christian in a severe tone. What faithless or imprudent servant has dared to disturb your young mind by an exaggerated account of these domestic events? 
No one, my father, I swear to you by my religion and my conscience. The enemy of the human race has had a hand in it, said the terrified chaplain. It would probably be nearer the truth, observed the abbe, and more Christian, to conclude that Count Albert is endowed with an extraordinary memory, and that occurrences, the recital of which does not usually strike a child of tender years, have remained engraved upon his mind. What I have seen of his rare intelligence induces me readily to believe that his reason must have had a wonderfully precocious development. And as to his faculty of remembering events, I know that it is, in fact, prodigious. It seems prodigious to you only because you are entirely devoid of it, replied Albert dryly. For example, you cannot recollect what you did in 1619, after withhold Podibrod, the Protestant, the Valiant, the Faithful, your grandfather, my dear aunt, and the last who bore our name, had died with his blood the stone of terror. You have forgotten your conduct under those circumstances, I would wager, Mr. Abbe. I confess I have entirely forgotten it, replied the Abbe with a sarcastic smile, which was not in very good taste at a moment when it was evident to us that Albert's mind was wandering. Well, I will remind you, returned Albert, without being at all disconcerted. You immediately went and advised those soldiers of the empire who had struck the blow to fly or hide because the laborers of Pilsen, who had the courage to avow themselves Protestants and who adored, we're told, were hastening to avenge their master's death and would assuredly have cut them in pieces. Then you came to find my ancestress, Ulrica, Witold's terrified and trembling widow, and promised to make her peace with the Emperor Ferdinand II, and preserve her estate, her title, her liberty, and the lives of her children, if she would follow your advice and purchase your services at the price of gold. She consented. Her maternal love prompted that act of weakness. She forgot the martyrdom of her noble husband. She was born a Catholic and had abjured that faith only from love for him. She knew not how to endure misery, proscription, and persecution in order to preserve to her children a faith which withhold had sealed with his blood and a name which he had rendered more illustrious than even those of his ancestors who had been Hussites, Calixans, Taborites, orphans, brethren of the Union, and Lutherans. All these names, my dear Porporina, are those of different sects, which united the heresy of John Huss to that of Luther, and which the branch of the Podibrods from which we descend had probably followed. In fine, continued Albert, the Saxon woman was afraid and yielded. You took possession of the chateau, you turned aside the imperial troops, you caused our lands to be respected, and you made an immense auto de fe of our titles and our archives. That is why my aunt, happily for her, has not been able to reestablish the genealogical tree of the Podibrods and has resorted to the less indigestible pasture of the Rudelstadts. As a reward for your services, you were made rich, very rich. Three months afterward, Ulrica was permitted to go and embrace the emperor's knees at Vienna, and graciously allowed by him to denationalize her children, to have them educated by you in the Romish religion, and to enroll them afterward 
under the standard against which their father and their ancestors had so valiantly fought. We were incorporated, my sons and I, in the ranks of Austrian tyranny. Your sons and you, said my aunt in despair, seeing that he wandered more and more. Yes, my sons Sigismond and Rudolf, replied Albert very seriously. Those are the names of my father and uncle, said Count Christian. Albert, where are your senses? Recall them, my son. More than a century separates us from those sad occurrences which took place by the order of Providence. Albert would not desist. He was fully persuaded and wished to persuade us that he was the same as Radislaw, the son of Withold, and the first of the Podibrods who had borne the maternal name of Rudelstadt. He gave us an account of his childhood, of the distinct recollection he had of Count Withold's execution, the odium of which he attributed to the Jesuit Dithmar, who, according to him, was no other than the abbe, his tutor. The profound hatred which during his childhood he had felt for this Dithmar, for Austria, for the imperialists, for the Catholics. After this, his recollections appeared confused, and he added a thousand incomprehensible things about the eternal and perpetual life, about the reappearance of men upon the earth, supporting himself upon that article of the Hussite Creed, which declared that John Huss was to return to Bohemia 100 years after his death and complete his work, a prediction which it appeared had been accomplished since, according to him, Luther was John Huss resuscitated. In fine, his discourse was a mixture of heresy, of superstition, of obscure metaphysics, and of poetic frenzy, and it was all uttered with such an appearance of conviction, with recollections so minute, so precise, and so interesting of what he pretended to have seen, not only in the person of Radislaw, but also in that of John Ziska, and I know not of how many other dead persons, who he maintained had been his own appearances in the past, that we remained listening to him with open mouths and without the power of interrupting or contradicting him. My uncle and aunt, who were dreadfully afflicted by this insanity, which seemed to them impious, endeavored to discover its origin, for this was the first time that it displayed itself openly, and it was necessary to know its source in order to be able to combat it. The abbe tried to turn it all off as a jest and to make us believe that Count Albert had a very witty and sarcastic disposition and took pleasure in mystifying us with his amazing learning. He had read so much, said he, that he could in the same manner relate the history of all ages, chapter by chapter, with such details and such precision as to make us believe if we were ever so little inclined to the marvelous, that he had in fact been present at the scenes he relates. The canoness, who in her ardent devotion is not many degrees removed from superstition, and who began to believe her nephew on the faith of his recital, received the abbe's insinuations very badly and advised him to keep his jests for a more fitting occasion. Then she made a strong effort to induce Albert to retract the errors with which he was imbued. Take care, aunt, cried Albert impatiently, that I do not tell you who you are. Hitherto I have not wished to know, but something warns me at this moment that the Saxon Ulrica is near. What, my poor child, replied she, that prudent and devout ancestress, 
who knew how to preserve for her children their lives and for her descendants the independence, the fortune, and the honors they now enjoy. Do you think she lives again in me? Well, Albert, so dearly do I love you that I would do even more for you than she did. I would even sacrifice my life if by so doing I could calm your troubled soul. Albert looked at her a moment with an expression at once severe and tender. No, no, said he at last, approaching her and kneeling at her feet. You are an angel, and you used to receive the communion in the wooden cup of the Hussites. But the Saxon woman is here, nevertheless, and her voice has reached my ear several times today. Allow her to be me, Albert, said I, exerting myself to cheer him, and do not think too ill of me for not having delivered you up to the executioners in 1619. You, my mother, said he, looking at me with flaming eyes, do not say that, for if so, I cannot forgive you. God caused me to be born again in the bosom of a stronger woman. He retempered me in the blood of Ziska, in my own substance, which had been misled. I do not know how. Amelia, do not look at me. Above all, do not speak to me. It is your voice, Ulrica, which has caused me all the suffering I endured today. On saying this, Albert hastily left the room, and we remained overpowered by the sad discovery we had made of the alienation of his mind. It was then two o'clock in the afternoon. We had dined quietly, and Albert had drunk only water. There was nothing, therefore, which could lead us to suppose that this frenzy could be occasioned by intoxication. The chaplain and my aunt immediately rose to follow and nurse him, thinking him seriously ill. But inconceivable as it may seem, Albert had already disappeared, as if by enchantment. They could not find him in his own apartment, nor in his mother's, where he frequently used to shut himself up, nor in any corner of the chateau. They searched for him in the garden, in the warren, in the surrounding woods, and among the mountains. No one had seen him far or near. No trace of his steps was anywhere to be found. The rest of the day and the succeeding night were spent in the same manner. No one went to bed in the house. Our people were on foot until dawn and searching for him with torches. All the family retired to pray. The next day and the following night were passed in the same consternation. I cannot describe the terror I felt. I, who had never suffered any uneasiness, who had never experienced in my life domestic events of such importance, I seriously believed that Albert had either killed himself or fled forever. I was seized with convulsions and, finally, with a malignant fever. I still felt for him some remains of love in the midst of the terror with which so fatal and so strange a character inspired me. My father had strength enough to pursue his usual sport of hunting, thinking that in his distant excursions he might possibly happen on Albert in the midst of the woods. My poor aunt, a prey to anguish, but still active and courageous, nursed me and tried to comfort everybody. My uncle prayed night and day. When I saw his faith and his pious submission to the will of heaven, I regretted that I was not devout. The abbe feigned some concern, but affected to feel no apprehension. It was true, he said, that Albert had never thus disappeared from his presence, but he required seasons of solitude and reflection. His conclusion was that the only remedy for these singularities was never to thwart them, 
and not to appear to remark them much. The fact is that this intriguing and profoundly selfish underling cared for nothing but the large salary attached to his situation of tutor, which he had made to last as long as possible by deceiving the family respecting the result of his good offices. Occupied by his own affairs and his own pleasures, he had abandoned Albert to his extravagant inclinations. Possibly he had often seen him ill and frequently excited, and had, without doubt, allowed free scope to his fancies. Certain it is that he had had the tact to conceal them from everyone who could have given us notice, for in all the letters which my uncle received respecting his son, there was nothing but eulogiums upon his appearance and congratulations upon the beauty of his person. Albert had nowhere left the impression that he was ill or devoid of sense. However this may have been, his mental life during those eight years of absence has always remained an impenetrable mystery to us. The abbe, after three days had elapsed, seeing that he did not make his appearance, and fearing that his own position had been injured by this accident, departed with the intention, as he said, of seeking for him at Prague, whither the desire of searching for some rare book might, according to him, have drawn him. He is, said he, like those learned men who bury themselves in their studies and forget the whole world when engaged in their harmless pursuits. Thereupon the abbe departed and did not return. After seven days of mortal anguish, when we began at last to despair, my aunt, in passing one evening before Albert's chamber, saw the door open and Albert seated in his armchair, caressing his dog, who had followed him in his mysterious journey. His garments were neither soiled nor torn, only the gold ornaments belonging to them were somewhat blackened, as if he had come from a damp place or had passed the nights in the open air. His shoes did not appear as if he had walked much, but his beard and hair bore evidence to a long neglect of the care of his person. Since that day he has constantly refused to shave himself or to wear powder like other men, and that is why he had to you the appearance of a ghost." My aunt rushed toward him with a loud cry. "'What is the matter, my dear aunt?' said he, kissing her hand. "'One would imagine you had not seen me for ages.' "'Unhappy child,' cried she, "'it is now seven days since you left us without saying a word. Seven long, weary days, seven dreadful nights, during which we have searched for you, wept for you, and prayed for you.' Seven days,' said Albert, looking at her with surprise. You must mean to say seven hours, my dear aunt, for I went out this morning to walk, and I have come back in time to sup with you. How can I have occasioned you so much anxiety by so short an absence? I must have made a slip of the tongue, said she, fearing to aggravate his disease by mentioning it. I meant to say seven hours. I was anxious because you are not accustomed to take such long walks, and besides I had an unpleasant dream last night. I was foolish. Good, excellent aunt, said Albert, covering her hands with kisses. You love me as if I were still a little child. I hope my father has not shared your anxiety. Not at all. He is expecting you at supper. You must be very hungry. Not very. I dined well. Where and when, Albert? Here this morning, with you, my good aunt. You have not yet recovered your senses, I perceive. Oh, I am very unhappy at having caused you such a fright. How could I foresee it? 
You know that such is my character. But allow me to ask you then, where have you eaten and slept since you left us? How could I have had any inclination either to eat or sleep since this morning? Do you not feel ill? Not the least in the world. Nor wearied? You must no doubt have walked a great deal, and scaling the mountains is so fatiguing. Where have you been? Albert put his hand to his forehead, as if to recollect, but he could not tell. I confess to you, said he, that I know nothing about it. I was much preoccupied. I must have walked without seeing, as I used to do in my childhood. You know I never could answer you when you questioned me. And during your travels, did you pay any more attention to what you saw? Sometimes, but not always. I observed many things, but I have forgotten many others, thank God. And why thank God? Because there are such terrible things to be seen on the face of the earth, replied he, rising with a gloomy expression which my aunt had not yet observed in him. She saw that it would not do to make him talk any more, and she ran to announce to my uncle that his son was found. No one yet knew it in the house. No one had seen him enter. His return had left no more trace than his departure. My poor uncle, who had shown so much courage in enduring misfortune, had none in the first moments of joy. He swooned away, and when Albert reappeared before him, his face was more agitated than his son's. Albert, who since his long journey had not seemed to notice any emotion in those around him, appeared entirely renewed and different from what he had been before. He lavished a thousand caresses on his father, was troubled at seeing him so changed, and wished to know the cause. But when they ventured to acquaint him with it, he never could comprehend it, and all his answers were given with a good faith and earnestness, which proved his complete ignorance of where he had been during the seven days he had disappeared. "'What you have told me seems like a dream, my dear Baroness,' said Consuelo, "'and has set me thinking rather than sleeping. "'How could a man live seven days without being conscious of anything?' That is nothing compared to what I have yet to relate, and until you have seen for yourself that, far from exaggerating, I soften matters in order to abridge my tale, you will, I can conceive, have some difficulty in believing me. As for me, who am relating to you what I have seen, I still ask myself sometimes if Albert is a sorcerer or if he makes fools of us. But it is late, and I really fear that I have imposed upon your patience." It is I who impose upon yours, replied Consuelo. You must be tired of talking. Let us put off till tomorrow evening, if you please, the continuation of this incredible history. Till tomorrow, then, said the young baroness, embracing her. End of chapter 29, read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown, November 5th, 2021.